Good morning. It's uh, great to be back with you. Edith and I uh, send our warmest regards. Peter Dart, uh, as many of you would know him as well, sends his regards and uh, prays that uh, God is blessing you here at uh, Dremoyne. Keep your Bibles open to Job. It's an interesting book. It's a, a book that I confess I don't know everything about, but it's a book that uh, has always intrigued me. Uh, many of you may know uh, a friend of mine that I used to work with in my days at the Commonwealth Bank, Peter, the little Asian guy uh, who came here a few times. Um, it's interesting because at the time we were working in quite an oppressive kind of situation. Our boss uh, was a confessed atheist uh, who was a black sheep, uh, according to his own terms. And so he knew me as a, as a Christian. It just gave me a hard time. Uh, and so it was, a, it was a hard place to work. Uh, it was a time which was good in a sense, looking back at it, uh, because it was a time that I could reflect uh, God's grace and I could show what it meant to be a Christian in a bit of a hard place to work. And so I tried to evangelise Peter. He came along, as you know, a few times. Uh, I remember earlier on I gave him a Bible uh, and he was you know, half interested, half not interested. But I remember this one day that uh, I had... Was, probably the, I think it was a day or two after I'd given him the Bible. Uh, he came back to me and said, Oh, this is a really interesting book. I stayed up all night last night uh, and I read one of the books, but I'm a bit confused. I said, well, what book did you read? He said, I read the book uh, from the title that said Job. Because we're having such a hard time at work, I thought the Bible would be able to help me with, with our work, our, our job. I said, oh, <laughs> well, it does, but I'm not sure that it, uh, it would help you in this specific instance. So that was my first exposure to the book of Job. Uh, Job. Uh, as you know, Peter, later on, not because of that, I don't think, became a Christian and uh, the Lord called him to himself, which is a, a great thing. So God works in mysterious ways and uh, I'm just hoping that uh, as we look through the book of Job this morning that uh, he'll open himself to us again this morning. So it's an interesting uh, experience and connection I have with the book of Job. It's always interesting. So let's uh, ask for God's help as we uh, look at it now. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, I confess personally that there are things in your word, there are things that happen in life that we are not privy to. Father, we pray this morning as we read from this amazing book entitled Job, that Lord, you would be merciful to us and do what you did to Job and show us more of your majesty, more of your, your honour, more of your glorious person. And we pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we love and serve. Amen. Now, I don't think I need to tell you or ask you if there has ever been a point in your life that you have ever dealt with the issue of suffering. I think all of us at a point in time have been addressed with that issue. Personal health issues, the death of a loved one, tragedy. We only see, need to turn on the news any day to see the world is full of tragedy and suffering. I remember only recently, this earlier this year, uh, having a couple of weeks off uh, over Christmas time, uh, coming back to work, um, looking after uh, what seemed to me on the surface a very fit, very healthy uh, Chinese man uh, in his late 40s, not much older than me, came in uh, under a familiar, very good surgeon, Dr Peter Stewart, uh, had come in, had surgery, uh, and I remember doing a round with, with Dr. Stewart, seeing this young man, uh, and Dr. Stewart saying to him, well, the operation went well, but there's a long road ahead. This man woke up 
uh, from the surgery. He had his bowel cut out completely. He had a bag sticking out of his stomach, which was going to be a permanent thing. Uh, the Dr. Stewart said the cancer was so big that uh, he would need not only the surgery that he has just under undertaken, but he would need to have intensive chemotherapy, radiotherapy, and Dr. Stewart couldn't give him any, any indication as to whether it was going to be a positive outcome for him. I remember looking at this man because what always happens in a hospital situation is they're just so stunned and so shocked by the doctor's news. All they say to the doctor is, OK, doctor, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And so Dr Stewart, as they always do, they walk out of the room and then I'm left, or the nurses are left to mop up the mess. I went back into the man. He was a bit of a blubbering mess. He says, I, I don't understand. What did he just say? And you just sort of give him a, a general indication. And I remember this man very vividly. He said, you know what, can I tell you something? Have you got a minute? I said, yeah, of course. I've never smoked a cigarette in my life. Not a drop of alcohol has ever touched my lips. I was a vegetarian for many years. I eat healthily. I exercise daily. I can't understand. Why me? Why has this happened to me? And I remember him looking. His lips were shaking, quivering. And he said, I know the answer. I know what to do. I said, well, it's a long road ahead. It's true, but you're in good hands. He said, no, no, no. I just want to die. What do you say to a man like that? I'm a Bible-believing Christian. I believe the word of God. I believe in the sovereignty of a heavenly God. As a Christian man, I know the Bible gives us answers. I know the Bible says that sin is the issue of the world. The fall of Adam and Eve into sin has brought a curse upon the whole entire world. And the human sin has caused suffering and grief and not only just humanity, but creation itself groans because of the fall. I know that. I'm not denying that. I know the Bible does have answers in regards to these things. But when the man looks at me in the face and he says to me, why me? What have I done wrong? As a Christian man, what can you say? What can you do? What, what answers can you give a man that is going through such grief? I can't answer the question. I don't know why God allows suffering to happen. I don't know why disasters occur. And for me, when things get out of control, which they often do, when times get tough, that is when I question the sovereignty of God. I wonder, is he really in control? And I ask the inevitable question that I think all of us ask. Why? Why is this happening? Why are you allowing these things to happen, God? That's when it happens. Well, I want us this morning to look at a man who struggled with, I think, the very same issues in his own personal life. He questioned who, the question whether God was truly in control. Is God sovereign? And we'll look at his example this morning and we will see his response. I think most of you would know that Job is probably the oldest book in the Bible, uh, very close to the time of Genesis, a uh, very old, uh, ancient book, full of wisdom, full of great answers for us. And I want us to look, we'll, we'll do a sweeping uh, study of the book, 
But I want to look particularly at the end of the book, which gives us, all, I think, all the answers to, to what uh, Job is experiencing. Let's look at verse, uh, chapter 42, and particularly starting from verse 2. God has given Job a, a great spiel, and then Job, we're told, replied to the Lord. He says, I know that you can do all things. No plans of yours can be thwarted. Here at the end of this book, after all the events that have taken place in Job's life, he comes to the point where he says, I acknowledge, God, that you are in total control. God's control is unlimited, unlimitable. There is nothing too hard for him. There is nothing beyond him. There is nothing greater than God himself. Job is confessing a wonderful truth, that God's power and his authority is absolute that God's control is unlimited. He reigns supreme. That what God wills always comes to pass. Nothing can stop his purposes. It's a wonderful truth. But it is made all the more wonderful when we see that it comes from the lips of this man, Job. It is a wonderful truth. Because if you turn with me, let's quickly just go back to chapter 1 of Job. In chapter 1, we are told three times that Job is a blameless and upright man. We're told that he fears God and he shuns evil. He is a godly man. What we're also told in the beginning of the book of Job is that this man, Job, is astronomically wealthy. He would be, in modern-day terms, a multi-multi-billionaire a Warren Buffett ten times over. We're told in verses 1 to 3, In the land of Uz there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. Friends, there is no man like Job. He is a good man living a good life. And then in the space of two days, only two days, everything comes crashing down. His sheep, his camels, his oxen, his donkeys are stolen and destroyed. His servants and all his children are slaughtered murdered, killed. And he himself is afflicted with painful sores from the bottom of his feet, we're told, to the top of his head. The greatest of all men ends up, quite literally, on a garbage heap, scratching his skin, finding broken pieces of pottery to scratch his skin that was so irritated because of the diseases and the sores that were afflicted on him. And what makes this matter worse is that this good man, this godly and upright man, Job, does not know why. He has no idea why these things have happened. And what is interesting is that Job himself, he doesn't know and he never knows. He is never told throughout the 42 chapters of this book, through his entire life, 
he is never ever told that it is Satan, that it is behind the scenes that has been defaming him. You see, God in the heavenly realms is holding Job up as a, as a godly example. He says this is a model example of what it is to look like and act like a godly person. And here is Satan coming into with all his uh, arrogance. He comes into the presence of the almighty God and he says, you're kidding. You have to be joking. This man, Job, only follows you because of all the blessings that you've poured out on him. He's the richest man in the world. Why wouldn't he, he bless you and love you? You always protect him. You've put a hedge around him. No one's going to harm him because you're looking after him. Satan says to God, he comes face to face with him, he says, listen, take away all his wealth, take away all his personal comforts, and you watch. He will curse you to your face, afflict his body with pain, and he will curse you. And that's exactly what happens. Look at from verses 6 through to 12 of chapter 1. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does, God fear God, uh, does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout all the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will sure, surely curse you to your face. Then interesting, the Lord said to Satan very well. Then everything he has is in your hands. But on the man himself, do not lay a finger. And for reasons we are never told, for reasons that we never find out, God gives Satan the permission to do just that, to take away his wealth, to take away everything that belonged to him, to inflict, afflict his body with pain and sores. I think it's fair to say at this point and from this very issue is that there are things that happen in the heavenly realms, there are decisions that are made in heaven that, are, that affected Job personally so profoundly. And like us, there are things that happen in heaven, decisions that are made in heaven that affect us here on earth so profoundly and yet we have no idea. We are not privy to any of the information. Things that happened in heaven affected Job so profoundly and yet he had no idea. He is never, ever, ever told why. Never. And I'm sure it's the same for us. There are things that happen to us on earth that we will never know why. Well, after all this tragedy, Job's three friends decide to come around and they sit with him in silence for seven days, probably the best comfort that they gave him throughout all his afflictions. They sat with him, they wept, they cried with him, they comforted him. They had no words to console him with. And then after those seven days, the silence broke. But it wasn't their friends that started to start speaking. It was Job himself. And he begins to ask the very familiar question 
Why? Why me? And as soon as he answers the question, his Job's jump at the chance. They've been waiting for the chance to jump in and explain exactly why it is that Job is suffering as he is. And in various ways, there's three friends and then uh, there's another friend that comes on in the uh, Elihu that comes later on in the scene. Doesn't really, I don't think, add any more clarity to the, to the situation, but he jumps on the bandwagon any, nevertheless. But what they all say in general, the, the, the four friends that come along, is that they accuse Job of committing some kind of sin. It was obvious to them that your suffering, Job, is the result of God's direct punishment. And friends, I think the interesting thing is, when I read Job and I read the theology and the examples of and the explanations that his friends give Job, I feel for them. There is, in a sense, I pity them in a way because I see myself there. These three friends, if you look at them as a whole, they have a very, very neat theology. They have easy answers. They have no loose ends to their theology. Everything is explainable. To his three friends, there are no mysteries in life. Everything can be explained. And for them, it's all clear cut. Job, you, are, you have sinned. God punishes sinners and so you're a sinner. And so you're pun- he's punishing you. The suffering you're going through is God's punishment. Job's response to these so-called friendly accusations is to protect his innocence and he does so in the strongest terms. Job knows that he has done nothing wrong to deserve such punishment. But yet he knows that he is not a perfect man. He knows that he's not sinless. He's upright and he's a godly man, but he knows he's not a but there's no unconfessed, there's no hidden sin in his life that he needs to confess. He's a godly man, he confesses his sins, he even prays for his sons, for so-called sins that they may have committed that he wasn't aware of. This man is godly. He's an upright man. But he knows that he hasn't sinned. There's no sin in his life that has caused this, this suffering. You see, Job and his friends differ on the subject of Job's innocence, but they are all trying to grapple with the same problem. You see, they all agree. Their theology is in, all, is in agreement when it comes to God and his sovereignty. They know God is sovereign. They know God is in control. They know God is just. But where they differ is in the area of his punishment. They all grapple with the issue. If God is sovereign, as we believe, then why is Job suffering? Well, there's two answers. One, if you take the side of his friends, that it must be that he deserves it, that he is sinful. Or two... You can take the side of Job, that if it's undeserved, if Job is indeed an innocent man, then the logical conclusion is that God must be unjust, that God is not sovereign. There are things out of his control. That is Job's problem. If he wants to insist on his innocence, which he does, he has to come, and he does. He comes within a whisker of charging God with injustice with being unfair. And he does so in Job chapter 27. You don't need to turn there with me, but let me read to you the words that come from Job's lips in his deepest, darkest hour. Chapter 22 and verses 2 to 6. And Job continued his discourse, As surely as God lives, who has denied me justice, 
the Almighty who has made me taste the bitterness of soul. As long as I have life in me, the breath of God in my nostrils, my lips will not speak wickedness and my tongue will utter no deceit. I will never admit to you that you are right till I die. I will not deny my integrity. I will maintain my righteousness and never let go of it. My conscience will not reproach me as long as I live. Here is a man, he is a good and godly man who is suffering devastating losses and personal affliction. He is struggling. On one hand, he knows what he believes to be true about God. He knows God is all-powerful. He knows God is all-controlling, all-sovereign. But yet, on the other hand, experientially, what he's going through in life on a personal level is contrary to what he believes. And he can't make sense of it. He just cannot make sense of it. As the story goes on, he becomes even more bitter. He toys even with the idea that God is actually cruel. And in the end, when it comes to the, to the, the end line for him, what Job does is he demands that God himself comes forward like a judge. He wants and demands God to come forward, come face to face with himself and give an explanation. Job is so bold and so confident that he says, God, you need to explain yourself. Come forth like a man and face me and tell me why. Give me the answer. Now let's turn back to chapter 42, which is the focus of our story this morning. And verse verse 2. Put in the back of your mind what has just transpired in the life of Job and his example, his, his experience. And yet in verse 2, he can say, after all that, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. Friends, something miraculous has taken place. Something truly amazing has taken place in, the, in this man's life. What has suddenly brought this man to a point where after going through all that he has done and experienced, he can say as he does, humbly before God, he says, I know that you can do all things. Where has his bitterness gone? Where has his rage and anger gone? Look at what Job says then in verses 3 to 5. Speaking of God, he says, You asked, Who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, Listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust. And ashes. What Job does is very clever. God in chapter 38 speaks to Job face to face as Job demanded. And he says to him, he asks these questions of Job. And Job here in verse 42 quotes those very questions that Job, uh, God asks of Job. Who is it that darkens my counsel? Job actually quotes what God had already asked of him. And then he gives his reply. This is what has made the difference to God. But what is it that can you, can you see what God has done? Can you see what has taken place that has transformed this man from anger and bitterness and rage to a humble confession that God is sovereign and in control? Can you see what has happened? It's something very simple. 
God has spoken. God has spoken. And what did God say? Well, we need to turn back to chapter 38 and see what the Almighty God had said to Job. Look back at 38. God unleashes here in chapter 38 a barrage of questions at his servant Job. And it's interesting to note not what God actually says. The interesting part to note here is what God doesn't say. In all of God's statements and all of his, his speech back to Job, what God never says is he never says Job is, is guilty of sin. He never charges Job with sin. What he doesn't say is that Job is guilty. He doesn't say that he is innocent of, of sin in general, but he doesn't say that he is guilty of sin specifically that has brought about his, his punishment, his suffering. And God, very, very interestingly, in his, any of his speeches, never, ever gives Job the answer to the question why. Never. Job never knows. But look at the questions God does ask. They all relate to creation. Let me just read parts of them for you so that we can get the context. The first 11 verses of chapter 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that darkens my counsel with with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning star sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness. When I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place. When I said, this far you may come and no farther. Here is where your proud waves halt. And then he goes on in verse 17. Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the shadow of death? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me, if you know all this, what is the way to the abode of light? And where, can, and where does darkness reside? Can you take them to their places? Do you know the paths of their dwelling? Surely you know, for you were already born. You have lived so many years. The barrage continues in chapter 40. He goes on at the beginning. The Lord continues and says to Job, Will the one who contend with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me like to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's? Or, and can your voice thunder like his? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor and clothe yourself in honor and majesty. Unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at every proud man and bring him low. Look at every proud man and humble him. Crush the wicked where they stand. Bury them in all the dust together. Shroud their faces in the ground, in the grave. Then I, will, I myself will admit to you that your own right hand can save you. And it keeps going on. It goes on and on and on. Look back at chapter 42 and verses 3 to 5. God asks in verse 3 to Job, 
Who is it that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I, have, surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. Job answers, it was me. It was me who darkened your counsel. It was me who spoke of things I did not understand. And then Job comes to this humble recognition and he says to God Almighty, I have no answer. I have nothing more to say. You said, in verse 4, Listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen. All this is emphasising one very important thing for us. The difference, the vast difference between God and Job. God is God. He is infinite. He is majestic. He is infinite. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is without equal. He and he alone is the creator. Job, on the other hand, is Job. He's like you and me. He's infinite. He's, he's finite. He's dependent. He is weak. And he is ignorant. He, like you and me, are just simple creatures. You see, this is how merciful and how loving God is. Friends, we need to understand what God could have done. Is he could have just then and there, when God shaked, shook his fist in the face of God and said, give me the answer why, God could have easily just told him. I'll tell you why. I've been a bit bored. Satan came flying through the air and he said, let's have a bet. I'm not really a betting man, God said, but okay, let's have a, let's have a crack. Here, here, Satan, you've got the odds five to one. See what you can do with my servant Job and see who wins. He could have easily said that because in, in a sense that's really what happened. We don't really know. Satan came into the presence of God and said, your servant Job, let me have a crack at him. God says, okay, have a go. See what comes of it. He doesn't do that. He never does that. He never knows. But what God does do is he does something far more awesome and amazing than that. Can you see what he does? Can you see what this great and awesome God does for his servant Job? Job's speech gives Job greater insight into the person and the character of the almighty God himself. God doesn't answer Job's demand for the question, why? Why does God allow these things to happen? He doesn't answer that question. He never does. But God reveals to Job more of his own character, of the God who knows why things happen, why bad things happen. God has restored to Job the right perspective, perspective, perspective on life. And look at Job's final response in verse 6. Therefore, Job says, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. I think we need to be careful here. Job does repent, and that's no denial. But what he does, I don't think he repents of, is specific sin that he's committed that has brought upon, brought upon himself this suffering. But what he repents of is him, his own accusations of God that he is unjust, that he somehow demands an answer that God needs to bring himself low and tell him the answer why. He repents of demanding of God an answer as though he deserved one. 
Now let's remember, this is, very, this is key to understanding the book of Job, I think. Job has received no reason as to his suffering. He never, ever receives an answer to the question, why? Why does God allow suffering? And I think the key is in the middle of this book, I think which uh, Tony Peterson preached only in November this year. It comes in chapter 28 in the, of the book of Job. Chapter 28 is a wisdom poem. It's a poem that comes in the middle of the book. Verse 28 of chapter 28 is key, I think. What it says is this. And God himself said to man, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to shun evil is understanding. That is the key to this book. The important thing for Job is not knowing the answer to the question why things have happened to him. But the key for him is to grow in wisdom and to know the God who knows why all things happen. The question, the greater thing for us all, if we're ever going through what Job goes through, we all go through issues like that, is not to know why, but it is to know the God, the almighty God who knows why bad things happen to good people, who knows why things happen. By the end, Job is ignorant no longer. He fears the Lord. Nothing in the book tells us as to why God did this. And on the surface, it may look as though God is just playing games with us, with people's lives, and he makes heavenly bets with, with Satan. But the majesty and the solemnity of God's reply shows that he is not playing games. He never plays games with us. His purposes may be mysterious, but, but they are never frivolous. They are not light-hearted, and his purposes are never whimsical. They are deep, and they are beyond human understanding. The end of the book underlines this very mystery to us because we're told that Job, at the end of verse 40, chapter 42, we're told that the Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the first. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and the story goes on. In the end, he has double what he had in the beginning. This astronomically wealthy man is twice as wealthy as he was in the beginning. Why? Why? We're never told. We're never told why all these things were taken away from Job and we're never told why they were restored to him in double. Why is he blessed again? Were his friends right? Just repent and be blessed. God condemns his friends. God comes to his friends. Look in verse 7. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is, what is right as my, Job, as my servant Job has. His friends with their little neat little box of theology with all the answers, with no loose ends, can explain everything away in human terms. God says, you've got no idea. You're wrong. We are never told why Job suffered. He never knows himself. But I think what we need to learn is like Job. There are often times in life when there are no neat, clean answers. There are loose ends that in our own human life will never be joined together. There are things that we will never understand. And we need no greater example of this than in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ himself. 
Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was tormented, he was troubled, he was sorrowful to the point of death. He screams, he says to his father, take this cup away from me, please. Please. But later we see this Lord Jesus, this man, the Son of God, he walked out of the garden. He is resolute. He is composed. He confronts his betrayer face to face. He confronts the Sanhedrin. He confronts the Pilate himself. He confronts the cross with great composure, with great confidence. What had happened in the garden? What happened there? Jesus prayed, didn't he? Remember what he prayed? Lord, not only did he pray, take this cup away from me, Lord, if it is your will, but later he prayed, not my will, but your will be done. He understood the sovereign will of God. He understood that his heavenly Father was in total control. In that garden, Jesus himself had come to realise that his Father is sovereign and that he has committed himself into his Father's hands. Whatever he meets outside of the Garden of Gethsemane is what his Father wanted to happen. He knew that. That deep assurance, and friends, it's far more than just an intellectual head knowledge. That deep assurance enabled the Lord Jesus to face the future with certainty, with courage, with confidence and with resolve. And that's the value of knowing that our God is sovereign. In the workplace tomorrow, in, the, in your marriage, in your singleness, battling with physical illness or mental anguish, when things just don't seem to make sense, when we can't understand why and what is happening, we can say, like the Lord Jesus said, Heavenly Father, we are in your hands. We can simply trust. You are in control of all things and no power in heaven or on earth can ever change that. I want to close with a, a story that I heard uh, of a man, uh, Ravi Zachariah. I don't know if you, you know him. He's a prolific uh, Christian uh, writer. It was many years ago now. He visited uh, a man in China. He was on a trip into mainland China. This man was uh, in his, a pioneer in his day, really. He, he was a, a local man. He had uh, heard the, the, the gospel message as a young man. He had committed his, his life to Christ. He had followed uh, and heard the missionaries, given his life to Christ, and become a leader in, in the local church in, in China. And as you do, it was in the days of uh, Mazi's Tung's regime. It wasn't long before the authorities had uh, got wind of this man and uh, the havoc that he was causing upon the, you know, the communist community. Other people were hearing this good news of Jesus and committing their life to Christ. Uh, the local authorities uh, grabbed him, seized him, belted the life out of him, threw him into prison and gave him an ultimatum. The choice is easy, they said. You have two options. Continue to believe in Christ and die here in jail and be tortured and, and tormented or repent, recant, tell us that you no longer believe in Jesus and we'll set you free. He was a young man. He, he thought, well, if I just tell them that I don't believe in Jesus, I'll go back on the streets and I can start all over again. So that's what he did. He told them that he no longer trusted in Jesus and uh, they were true to their word. They let him free and he went, was back free on the streets of, of China. 
This man went on for, for months and years, but he was so riddled with guilt that he started to walk the streets of Beijing once again. But this time he had only one message, and he would scream at the top of his voice along the streets of Beijing. He would say, My name is Peter. My name is Peter, for I have denied my Lord. Well, as you would know, it wasn't long before the authorities got, got wind of it. They locked him up again, and this time they threw him in prison, tortured, humiliated, flogged for the sake of his Lord. Ravi Zachariah remembers this man at that time. This is more than 10 years ago now. This man had been in prison for more than 19 years at that time uh, for his faith. Ravi Zachariah went, went to him. He saw this man lifeless, gaunt, stripped of any life, just sitting on a chair, his face drooping, tongue hanging from his mouth, very clearly tortured. There were, there were scars on his body. There were you know, whip marks. This man had been tormented and tortured probably beyond any of our wildest imaginations. And Ravi sort of tried to make conversation with him and nothing came out of this man's mouth. The, wife, the, the man's wife was sitting next to, to them and said, there's, not much, he, he's, there's no life in him. I, I, we just pray that the Lord will take this man away. Ravi said to him, well, let, let me just pray. So he closed in prayer and when he said, he got up, put his hands on the man's shoulder and went to leave. The man lifted his head and said, Mr. Zachariah, I have one thing to say to you before I, before you go. And he pulled out a, uh, he went to Mr. Zachariah and he said, for the, every day for the last 19 years, I have sung this song in my head. And the song was, all the way my saviour leads me. All despite all the trials and temptations that come my way, all I can say is that my saviour Jesus has led me all the way. This man was resolved to know that God's was sovereign, that whatever would befall this man's life, 19 years in prison, tortured, tormented, he was going to die in there. He came to the realisation that that is what his heavenly father had ordained for him. All the way my saviour leads me, this I know, the things beside. Jesus has done all things well. Friends, may that be our testimony too, that whatever may befall us, our Lord Jesus does all things well. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that you are indeed in control of all things. Father, we pray and acknowledge that there are things that will happen in life if they have not already befallen us, that we have absolutely no idea why. Personal illness, family tragedy, whatever it may be, all we can say, our Heavenly Father, is that we are in your hands and may your will be done. For the honour and the name and the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Amen.